Good morning. We're going to be reading from Colossians 3, 1 through 17 today. If you would stand for the reading of God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which in teeth are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, our prayer this morning is that you would inhabit the praises of your people. Praise expressed through through spoken word, through words that are sung, through our through our time together as we as we fellowship, as we as we spend time in your word and with one another. Lord, all of those are acts of worship and praise, and we pray that you would inhabit them. That we would leave this place this morning knowing that we have met with you, and that that meeting would overflow into the week that is to come. Lord, this is, a, this is a precious time, and we thank you for it. We pray that you would be honored through what we say and do here this morning, through what is sung and through what is spoken. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing a series we began at the beginning of the year, um, kind of walking our way through uh, the vision that, uh, that your elders have, have, uh, have developed over over these past months, um, we began by talking about going. The, 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 the vision is threefold. It flows from the, the Great Commission, that as we make disciples, we are to be a church that is going, a church that is gathering, and a church that is teaching, a, a going church, a gathering church, a, a teaching church. So we spent some time looking at going. Now, we've over these last weeks, we've been talking about gathering. Just as a reminder, this is what the gathering part of our, our, our vision statement states. We glorify God in gathering as God's elect, 
sharing together in worship of our Lord Jesus and showing the love of God shed in our hearts towards one another. So that's what we've been looking at over these past weeks. We have a couple more weeks, I think, in gathering, and then we're going to make a transition to teaching. When we do that, we're actually going to teach our way through a book of the Bible. What a unique way to talk about teaching, I know. So um, prepare yourselves. You might want to be reading through the book of Galatians over the next few weeks. That's what we're going to be teaching through as an example of and also as, as teaching, teaching God's Word. So that's what, we're gonna, that's, how, that's what our plan is, at least at this point. Um, I've told you before that I um, have maintained my subscriptions to social media somewhat reluctantly. But pr primarily, uh, well, two things, I guess. I, uh, it's, where I get, it's where I get really cool pictures of my family, baby pictures and pictures of my grandkids. So I, I subscribe to social media for that. They show up on my Facebook posts, on my Instagram posts pretty frequently. Uh, I also do it because I get fodder for sermons from social media. Now, typically, that is in the form of something from, say, Desiring God or Truth for Life or something like, you know, J-Max, uh, Grace to You, something like that. I'll see an article or a blog post that one of these teachers will post, and, and that will, it'll, it'll it, and it often comes right in the week before I'm going to preach. It's kind of amazing. Um, and something like that happened to me this week. Uh, it's a little bit different. It was posted by a, a friend of mine, used to be, uh, a link to a YouTube video of a song by Steve Martin. So not John Piper, not, yeah, you're, um, and Steve Martin and the Steep Canyon Rangers, apparently that's his band. I don't know if you know that, uh, in addition to being a very funny guy, Steve Martin's a pretty accomplished musician. So he has this band called the Steep Canyon Rangers, and apparently they wrote a song entitled this. <coughs> Bear with me. Atheists don't have no songs. The song is entitled, Atheists Don't Have No Songs. This is kind of how it goes. Christians have their hymns in pages, Havanagilas for the Jews. Baptists have the rock of ages. Atheists just sing the blues. Romantics play Claire de Lune, born again sing, he is risen. But no one ever wrote a tune for godless existentialism. For atheists, there's no good news. They'll never sing a song of faith. Atheists, atheists, atheists don't have no songs. For atheists, there's no good news. They'll never sing a song of faith in their songs. They have a rule. The he is always lowercase. Atheists, atheists, atheists don't have no songs. Now, I bring that up because what we're talking about this morning is singing. The topic of the sermon this morning is singing, and, and my contention will be that the one of the things we do as a gathering church is that we are a, a singing church. I, I think singing is something that if it's not uniquely Christian, it's at least distinctively Christian. You know, atheists don't have no songs. But we as Christians, we have a lot of songs. And we sing them. And it's part of, part of I believe, what makes us distinctively, distinctively Christian. A gathering church is a singing church. Now, it, you might ask, if you've been over here over the last couple of weeks, we spent the last two Sundays um, looking at the ordinances of baptism and, and the Lord's Supper. These two things that were given to us as commands by our Lord. And we, in obedience to Him, practice those things, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And you might think, well, aren't we kind of going from, um, from a major to a minor? 
Aren't we kind of moving to, from things that are really, really super important, like, like baptism and the Lord's Supper, and now we're, this morning we're going to talk about singing? Seems like we're taking a step back or maybe a step down. Well, it's true that singing is not an ordinance. It's not. The Lord's Supper and baptism, those are ordinances, and that's one of the reasons we practice them. But they do have some things, the singing does have some things in common, I think, with both the Lord's Supper and baptism. I think one of the primary things is that it's something we do together. When we sing, we sing together. We gather together and, and we sing together. It's a, it's a communal thing, if you will. And believe it or not, just as the Lord's Supper and baptism are commanded, singing is commanded. Singing is something that we are, that we are commanded to do. I don't know if you paid it, you were listening to the call to worship this morning when, when Pastor Chris read from Zephaniah. The first words of what he wrote was, was the first word I think that he read was sing. That's, a, that's an imperative. That's a command. When, when God spoke through Zephaniah and inspired him to write those words, he was writing an inspired command. They're, 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 very, they're pretty common. Imperatives to sing are pretty common in the Old Testament. Um, they, they show up a lot in the Psalms. I, I, I picked just one. This is Psalm 149, verse 1. It says, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the godly. I picked that one because it talks about singing in the assembly. kind of reinforces my point that we, we sing together. But that word sing in that verse is a command. It's an imperative. It's not a maybe you might want to sing. God commands us to sing. And, and, and we'll see in our passage this morning that singing is part of an imperative here as well in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, so it's, it's communal and it's commanded, but I think maybe, I don't want to say more importantly, but maybe equally importantly, our singing flows from a response to the gospel. Our singing should flow from a response to the gospel. Just as our practice of baptism and our practice of the Lord's Supper should flow from our response to the gospel. Because of what God has done for us, we, we take the meal together. Because what, of what God has done for us in Christ, we, we baptize, we, we practice baptism. And I would submit to you this morning that we sing in response to what God has done for us through Christ in the gospel. You know, that, that's the way Paul begins it here in, in chapter 3. Our primary text this morning, by the way, is just verses 16 and 17, but I'm going to take advantage of the entire context of chapter 3, or the beginning of chapter 3, to, to inform what we're going to see this morning. So Paul begins this way. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Folks, that's gospel. He begins this chapter with, with gospel, with the miracle of our, of our union with Christ in His death, in His resurrection, yes, even in His, in his glorification. We see that this union with Christ affects our past and our present and our future, that the gospel is wrapped up in everything that we are. 
Everything that we will be, everything that we have comes. We said atheists don't have no don't have good news. We have we have abundant good news, and we sing in response to that. We sing because of what Christ has done for us. We sing because when He died, we died. And when he was raised, we were raised. And that as he has been glorified, there is a time coming when we too will, will be glorified. Paul puts it elsewhere. This is in Romans chapter 6. He, he, he puts it in these terms. He says, now, this is Romans 6, chapter, uh, verses 8 through 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's very good news. That Christ died once for all so that our sins could be paid for and that we can walk in newness of life. It's gospel, and we sing in response to the gospel. In short, we sing because we're saved. I'll say it again. We sing because we're saved. Yes, we sing because God has saved us. But we just don't sing because we're saved, but we sing because we're being saved. See, our, our salvation we can mark back to a point in time when we... When we accepted Christ's sacrifice for us, and we, and we took Him as Savior and Lord. We received Him. That's a, that's a moment in time. That's, um, don't, theologians talk about that as, as justification, where, where at that moment, Jesus takes upon Himself our sins, and we take upon Himself our righteousness, and we are saved. But we are not only saved in the past, but we are being saved. That's called sanctification. I use the term being saved because, well, because Paul does. He talks about our sanctification that way. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's about to, to lay out the essence of the gospel, but he begins with this introduction at the beginning of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. You see, Salvation is both a moment in time and then a continuing action. We have been saved and we are being saved. I think we see in this passage, um, you might call it two sides of the sanctification coin. In verse 5, Paul, call, Paul calls us to put to death those things in our, in our, in our lives that are displeasing to God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must make, put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So there's side one of the coin, which is putting off those things, and not just putting them off, but putting them to death. Not just putting them aside, but killing them. Killing our sin. In, uh, in his uh, somewhat famous work, John Owen wrote this from his work, The Mortification of Sin. 
he asks these questions and then makes these statements. John Owen says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Sobering words, but I think it's the same thing that Paul is calling us to here, isn't it? I mean, think, when we think about this, Paul is writing the book of Colossians to Colossian believers. He's not, reading, he's not writing to non-Christians, he's writing to Christians. And he's telling these Christians to put to death their sin. To be killing sin, or it will be killing them. He's calling them to put aside and to put to death those things that stand between them and their relationship with God. But it's not just that. It's, it's not just putting to death our sin, but it's, it's putting on these other attributes. He says in verse 10, you have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then in verse 12, put on then is God's chosen, bearing with one another, and passionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body. And be thankful. Again, Owen puts it this way. After calling us to kill sin, he says this. Do not seek to empty your cup as a way to avoid sin, but rather seek to fill it up with the spirit of life, so there is no longer room for sin. Piper puts it this way. John Piper puts it this way in his it's a, a little booklet uh, called Battling Unbelief, Defeating Sin with Superior Pleasure. He writes this. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it offers some promise of happiness. That promise enslaves us until we believe that God is more desirable than life itself. Only the power of God's superior promises in the gospel can emancipate our hearts from servitude to the, shallow, the shallow promises and fleeting pleasures of sin. Yeah, so we're called to do both. We're, Paul, we're called not just to put our sin to death, but also to, to, to call in these things, to put on these things that can take the place of sin, these superior pleasures, as Piper calls them. That we put those on, things that are above, not, not these earthly things, as he said in verse 5. We're putting to death what is earthly and then putting on what is Christ. And again, it, it is in verses 1 through 3, we, we got this image of what it looks like to be united with Christ. We're united with him in his death, united with him in his life, and someday, you know, I guess in some measure now, but, but fully someday, united with him in his, in his glory. And not only union with Christ, if you look at verse 11, he says, Here is not Jew and Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So there's a, a sense in which our union with Christ then leads to union with one another. That just as we are in Christ, he is in us, and we are all together. And again, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were all called in one body. 
one body. That's why I, I think singing is something we do together. It's something that binds us together. It's something that, that, that's common to us. Something that is uh, it's communal. It, it occurred to me that really what Paul is talking about here when he, uh, when he talks about these things that we're to put on, he's really just telling us to put on the fruit of the Spirit. If you read through from verses 5 all the way through around, you know, verse 15 or so, there are echoes there. He puts it a little more succinctly in, in the book of Galatians. He says this. This is Galatians 5, 22 to 23, familiar passage. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law think that's what he's calling us to. He's saying, as you put to death your sin, you put on these things. You put on the fruit of the Spirit. You, you put on Christ. Because Christ is, is all, and Christ is in all. So, we sing because we're saved, and we sing because we're being saved. Our singing is a response to those miraculous realities. We sing because of the gospel. We sing because of what God has done for us in Christ. And we sing because of what God is doing for us in Christ day by day as we put our sin to death and we put on fruit of the Spirit. There are a couple little corollaries here. I just saw these as I was looking through it. Um, I think they probably um, uh, go perhaps better with point one than with point two. But here we are. Uh, the beginning of verse 12, he says, put on these things as God's chosen ones. It's God's chosen ones. So we sing because we're chosen. Sing because God has called us to be a part of his family, because he, before the foundation of the world, chose us to be in him. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive I think the, the, chosen, the chosenness and the forgiving, that more appropriately goes with uh, our, our being saved than our, um, our, our, our initial salvation rather than being saved on an ongoing basis. But for sure, we continue to receive God's forgiveness. And then this, um, and I almost skipped over it because it, it, didn't, it doesn't jump out. No, at least it didn't jump out to me at the beginning. Um, and it seems kind of obvious. If, we're, if we sing because we're saved and we sing because we're being saved, well, what is, what, what, what's that response boiled down to? Well, the response is a response of gratitude, right? I mean, we, we sing because we're saved, we sing because we're being saved, and, we're, and we sing because we're thankful that we've been saved. And we're thankful that we're being saved. And I said, I kind of skipped over it until I noticed that Paul doesn't skip over it. In fact, he thinks it's pretty important. In verse 15, he says at the very end of verse 15, I'll just read the whole thing. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. And then in verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. So it seems to me, if, if, if nothing else, just for the repetition. And for Paul, being thankful is a, it's a big deal. 
And I think that, again, that boils down the, the, the essence of our response. When we are singing because we're saved, when we're singing because, of our, because we're being sanctified, because we're being saved, we sing because we are grateful. We sing because we are so very thankful for what God has done for us in Christ. And then we get to the, to the meat of it, I guess. I mean, this is, all this thing, all that we've seen so far is glorious. I don't want to minimize it, but the, verses 16 and 17 are really our focus. 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What I take from that is, and uh, just again to try to boil it down to its essence, is that when we sing, we sing scriptural songs. We, scream, we sing scriptural songs. The, uh, the imperative here at the beginning of verse 16 is let dwell. In English, it ends up kind of getting, being split into two parts, but there's really just one word, let dwell, and that's the imperative. That's the command here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This, this word, um, this word that's, that's translated dwell, it's a, it's, it's, it's a deep, deep truth. It's as if the word of Christ is to permeate us, to, to inhabit us, to, to, to live within us. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 8, 11, when he writes this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal, mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul's trying to make a point that we as believers are indwelt by the Spirit of God. It is, it's, it's in, in, a, in a miraculous sense, the Spirit of God responding in us and through us to what we have been given. And that is, it's in the same way, the Word of Christ is to dwell in us, it's to, to inhabit us, to live in us, to make its home in us. It, it, it's, it's mysterious, for sure. How is it that the word of Christ makes its dwelling place in us? And, and Paul gives us some, some illumination on that. He tells us some ways that that can happen. In addition to the imperative, we have three participles. I know y'all love grammar. Three participles. It reminded me, it's very similar actually to the Great Commission. The Great Commission has one command, make disciples. And then it has three participles, going and gathering and, well, going and baptizing and teaching. On. But in, a, in the same sense, there's this imperative of let the word of Christ dwell in you, and then it gives us some explanation of how that works. He says, let the word of Christ dwell, teaching, teaching, and admonishing, and singing. Which is amazing to me. Think about it. I mean, teaching and admonishing, they make sense in the context of, of the word, don't they? When we think about what the word is for. What the Word does for us, yeah, it makes sense that we, we, we receive teaching from the Word. And, and, it, and it makes sense that there are, there are things in the Word that we can use as, 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 as admonitions. We can hear from the Word admonitions, warnings, and encouragements. And then Paul throws in one more. He says, we are to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching, admonishing, and singing. How is it that singing goes with the rest of this? How is it that singing is a part of it? 
Well, I, I, I guess there, there are probably a couple of ways. Um, first of all, this, this word this, uh, that's, um, that's translated singing, um, Thayer in his lexicon defines it this way. And I, I, I like this. He says, singing is the lyrical emotion of a devout and grateful soul. Singing is the lyrical emotion of a devout and grateful soul. It's, a, it's this idea of, of overflow, of, of an outpouring of response and gratitude for what God has done for us. And then he tells us three different ways that we can sing, three different things that we can sing, I guess. You could put it that way. He says, we're singing, as we sing, we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, the first one seems pretty obvious. Um, when he says psalms, he means psalms. Wow, that was deep, I know. Try to stick with me. Yeah, when he, when he, when, when he says psalms, he means psalms. This word psalms is, shows up other places in the New Testament. Um, Luke 20, 42, Acts 13, 33, for a couple. There are others. Um, and when the word psalms appears there, it, it appears specifically referring to one of the psalms from the book of Psalms from the Old Testament. I, I think it means the same thing here. I hear Joe saying, amen, we should sing the Psalms. Amen. There we go. <laughs> yeah, so when we sing, we should sing, we should sing Psalms because that's one of the things Paul tells us we should sing. He says we should sing hymns. This one's a little less clear. It doesn't show up. Uh, I think that that word only shows up here and then there's a parallel passage in Ephesians 5.19 that has some similar wording. Uh, that's really the only place this, this word shows up in the New Testament. So it's, you know, we we're left with a little bit of ambiguity as to what we're supposed to sing here. We do know that there are many scholars that, that agree that there are, there, are, there are hymns that are woven into Scripture. As we read, especially in Paul's epistles, we read, we read words that they believe were at least, you know, sort of, sort of fledgling hymns, things that were making their way into the worship of the church. A couple of examples, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. We've, uh, we've read that one on numerous occasions. I think it's actually coming back. Where it talks about the, the gloriousness of Christ and who He is. Or Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. That's another passage that, that most scholars are, are in agreement that they appear to be words to hymns that would have been sung in the early church. And there are, there are others. So we're to sing psalms, we're to sing hymns, and we're to sing spiritual songs. And this one probably is the most vague. Spiritual songs. But, but I don't think so. I think it means that we are, when we sing songs, we should sing songs that are inspired by Scripture. When he says spiritual songs, he means our songs should be inspired by Scripture. Because he began with the command, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the command. Singing is just a, a participle that goes along with it. So I think we need to go back to the command if we're not sure exactly what he means by spiritual songs. I think what he means is your songs should be inspired by the Spirit, which has been inspired by the Word. I don't know about you. Um, I always feel more comfortable when I'm as close to the Word as possible. I just do. I think singing songs directly from Scripture, you can feel 100% confident in. And then after that, you just want to make sure that the songs you're singing, the words that you're singing, whether they're songs from Scripture or they're songs that have been written by somebody else using Scripture as an inspiration, 
You just want to make sure that the words that you're singing align with the truth of Scripture. Uh, as elders, we have developed, uh, crafted a, a statement, a, a position paper, if you will, on, about, on, on how the songs that we sing here at Remedy are to be chosen, how they're to be selected. There are a number of criteria. Um, I'm, I, was, I thought about sharing it with you this morning, but for, for, uh, for in interest of time, I will not. If you, if you want to know, grab one of your elders. They can, they can tell you what the criteria is. We, we developed it, we crafted it, we've shared it with our, with our folks that, uh, that, that lead in singing. Um, we we want to be very careful. We want to make sure that the songs that we sing are in line with Scripture because I think the implication of this, of this verse is not only do we, are we singing in response, but we're singing in, in ways that can be instructive. I don't think that teaching and admonishing and singing are, next, are, are, are disconnected things. We should teach, and we should admonish, and we, can, we should sing, because they're all pointed back to the Word. So we teach as the Word of Christ dwells in us richly, and we admonish as the Word of Christ dwells in us richly, and we sing as the Word of Christ dwells in us richly. The implication being that we can be taught by singing. We can be admonished by singing. So we need to be very careful what we're teaching when we sing. It's our commitment to you that we're going to do that. We're going to be very careful. We're, we're, going, to, we're going to do our, our dead level best to make sure that the words that we sing line up with Scripture. That we're not singing something that would teach us something that's not in the Word. So, again, I, I liked Thayer's definition that singing is the lyrical emotion of a devout and grateful soul, but it's not just that. Our, our singing should be, to some extent, emotional. I mean, music is intended to do that. It's intended to stir up our emotions. But our singing shouldn't just be emotional. Our singing should also, should also be thoughtful. We shouldn't just give in to our emotions and be carried along by our emotions. We're, our singing should be thoughtful. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 14, 15. I will pray with my spirit but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Our worship through song isn't intended to turn off our brains, to disconnect us from what we know. In fact, it's intended very literally to connectification and to connect us with what we know from the word of Christ as it, as it dwells in us richly. So we, we sing scriptural songs. And we sing to glorify Christ. At the end of the day, we sing to glorify Christ. This is how, how Paul concludes this section. And whatever you do, including all the things we've already talked about, and others, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We sing because our singing glorifies Him. We sing in His name. Again, um, Thayer, in defining this, defining this word that it says the name of Christ, there's so much depth of meaning to that. What does it mean to, to sing in the name of Christ? This is how Thayer defines it. He says this, um, In the name of God, 
the name of Christ, in the New Testament is used for all those qualities which, to his worshipers, are summed up in that name, and by which God makes himself known to men. It is therefore equivalent to his divinity, the divine majesty and perfections, so far forth as these are apprehended, named, and magnified. So that's what it means when, when Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, which includes our singing, as we sing, we sing in the name of the Lord Jesus. We sing in his name. We sing to glorify him. And finally, and this, this isn't directly from our text, but it's, uh, it's an implication. These, the, the words translated singing and songs, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, those two words appear separately and together five times in the New Testament. They appear here. They appear in the passage I mentioned, mentioned earlier, the sort of parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5. And then they appear three times in the book of Revelation. Three times in the book of Revelation. So our singing is not only for here, but our singing is for then. It's for the future. It's for eternity. That's my final point. We sing because we'll sing eternally. We sing now because we're going to sing eternally. It's our, it's our destiny, if you will. What we do here, it's kind of a, a rehearsal, if you will for what we're going to do in eternity. One of the Revelation references comes from uh, Revelation chapter 5. John writes this, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the hand of him who was seated on the throne, and when he taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. We're going to sing eternally. It's, it's not all we're going to do. Just like now, it's not all we do. We don't spend every moment of every day singing, but we're going to continue to sing into eternity. So I think it's fitting that we prepare as much as we can now for what we're going to do then. So let me leave you with a, uh, a couple of implications. Uh, and I don't want to overstate it, but it seems to me from the context here of Colossians chapter 3 that singing is a part of being saved. And I don't mean by that part of our initial salvation experience. It's a part of our continuing to be saved. It's a part of our sanctification, I guess, if you will. 
just put a groundwork at the beginning of the chapter for our for our, our salvation and our sanctification, and then he transitions quite seamlessly to, oh, by the way, as you let the word of God, word of Christ dwell in you, you should teach and admonish and sing. I think they're all of a piece. You can't just take the singing out. Yeah, I'm 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 down for all the rest of that stuff. I'm thankful that I'm saved, and yeah, I want to put to death all, this, all these lingering sins that are in me, and I want to put on all these characteristics. I want to put on the fruit of the Spirit. And yes, teach and admonish, and let the well, Word of Christ dwell in me richly, absolutely. But I can put the singing aside. I guess it's commanded, but I, 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 I'm not really a singer. I don't, I, I'm just going to separate that from the rest as sort of an optional thing. I think I'm, I'm at least trying to make the case that that's, that's not something we should do. That singing is a part of our being saved. The other implication is that as the word of Christ dwells in us more and more richly, I think that's the call here. When he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he's not saying at a point in time, but again, over this continuum of your Christian walk. Let the word of Christ dwell in you more and more and more and more richly. One of the aspects of that is, is singing. And the implication being that as the word of Christ dwells in you more and more richly, you'll be more and more inspired to sing. I think. As the word of Christ dwells in you more and more richly, as you become more enamored with him, as you become more grateful for what he has done for you, you should be, I think, inspired to sing more. It should flow out of as a response to what God has done for you in Christ. It should be an overflow. One overflow. Not the only overflow, but it should be one overflow from the word of Christ dwelling in you more and more and more richly. So, I mean, I guess, I, I, I don't know where you all stand on the singing continuum. Some of you love to sing. I know you do. I hear you. I see you. But I'm guessing that some of you maybe don't. Maybe it's something that's never really been something that you've thought about too much. You may think, I, I'm not a good singer. I don't, I don't sing well, and I, it's not, I, I'm not a musical person. Well, I guess I would say a couple of things. You know, pray about that. <laughs> Ask God by His Spirit to inspire you to be maybe uh, more enthusiastic about singing, more inspired to sing. But let me say this: there, there is, there is power in singing together. One of the reasons that singing is a communal activity is because there's power when we sing together. You know, I, I know the word says make a joyful noise to the Lord. doesn't matter if you're a good singer, if you're tone deaf, if you can't. But, but, but still, when you sing, no matter what your singing ability is, your natural singing ability, when we sing together, there's power there. Uh, it made me think, I don't, if you ever, I don't know if you've had a chance to, to see the Charlotte Football Club. You ever been to a CFC game, CFC match? I don't know the full history. Um, the first time I went, I was a little bit taken aback because the person gets up to sing the national anthem and they and they're you know oh say can you, and about one line in, the person took the mic down and stopped singing into the microphone. 
And I, I found out later that something happened in one of the, this is only the second year they've been uh, an organization, so something happened in one of the early matches and the mic failed. It just stopped working. The person singing the national anthem and the mic failed. And I don't want to use miraculously, but somehow everybody in the stadium, I don't know, 30, 40,000 people picked it up and they sang it together. Acapella. <laughs> the whole stadium began to sing the national anthem together. And that happened when I was there. You know, the person's on the mic goes, hey, and then they put the mic down, and I looked, what is going? I found out later what was happening. And you can't, it's, it's amazing the power of, the, of this group of people, this, this communal group of people singing together. I, I can guarantee you there's, you know, very few professional singers standing in that stadium. You know, probably a lot of them aren't very good singers, but when they all sing together, it sounded really amazing. How much more so? When we as the people of God gathered, it is awesome and amazing. And I guess the final question, it's the title of the sermon. In light of all that we have seen, how can we keep from singing? How can we not sing as a response to what God has done for us in Christ? I stole the title for this song, well, borrowed the title for this song from a song that was written by um, Chris Tomlin and, and Matt Redman and Ed Cash, you know, quite a redoubtable group of, uh, of songwriters. It was written way, 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 way back in 2006. I know, back in the dark ages. Um, it's called How Can I Keep From Singing? And um, I've been known from time to time to close out a sermon, reading text from, or reciting text from a song, and I was going to do that. I, I printed it, and I was going to read to you some of the words from this song. And then I thought, well, that's kind of cheating, isn't it? <laughs> and I spent all this time talking to you about singing, and then I'm going to read a song to you? So we're going to sing this song together. Jonathan's going to come up and give me some assistance. Um, and we're going to sing. How can I keep from singing in response to what Christ has done for us? I 
can sing when I lose my step and I fall down again. I can sing because you pick me up. Sing because you're there. I can sing because you hear me, Lord, when I call to you in prayer. I can sing. From singing your praise, how can I ever say enough? How amazing is your love? How can I keep from shouting your name? I know I am loved by the King, and it makes my heart, I know I am loved. respond to you in a way of which you are worthy as we come to know you better and better as we grow in our sanctification as we grow in the the putting to death of our sin and the putting on of Christ or that we would grow in our desire to praise you and part of that praise is through singing Lord, we thank you for what a, a marvelous gift that is, that, that we as your children have a song to sing in response for what you have done for us. So, I don't know how we can keep from singing. You are such a great, marvelous God. And we want to praise you. Uh, help us to become better us to become more, more committed to your praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name.